This is a Podfire production. This podcast may have explicit themes and swearing and may not be suitable for children. The world is full of amazing people and once a week I get the opportunity to interview one of them. My name is Brett McCallum and this is Awesome Humans. Today's Awesome Human is Janine Mahoney. I think I said that wrong but we'll we'll check that in a minute. Experienced consultant, chief executive officer and board director with a demonstrated history of working in government, corporate and community sectors. Skilled in innovation, strategic development, human-centred design, organisational reliance, corporate social impact, government and program elevation. Strong business development professional with a Bachelor of Arts, BA, focused in psychology and accountancy from La Trobe University, BCAE in brackets. But more importantly, she was one of the Australian Financial Review 100 Women of Influence in 2018. Hello. Hi there, how are you? How are you? I stole that. <laughs> I know As you might have realised, I nicked that straight off LinkedIn. Yeah, that's a <laughs> bit of a boring start. Oh, I know, but that's mind. all right. We'll get better. We'll get better, I promise. It's Mahoney, Mahoney, how do I say it? Marnie. Marnie? I was, I was wrong. Do you well, know, I actually got... Okay. you were just like everybody else because <laughs> I don't think anyone ever says my name right, so that's fine. So it's Marnie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, so, uh, the Irish pronunciation. Okay. Well, I actually thought of Police Academy. Remember that movie? Yeah. And Mahoney? Yeah. He was in that. That's where I've seen it from. But anyway, completely different. How are you, darling? You good? I'm well, thank you. So today's podcast is all about you. This is Awesome Humans. This is... I've been... I've met you a couple of times now and... Uh, I really want to know what's going on. So what we always do at the start of this podcast is go back to the very start. What's your first ever memory? How far back can you go? Uh, probably when I was about two or three. Mm, that's good. Uh, Christmas Day. Okay. And I got given a walking doll by Santa. A walking doll? A walking doll. And what's it was, a walking doll? Well, back in the day, it's showing my age, it's a, a doll that when you held its hand, it sort of it walked along. So was it on like wheels or something? I don't, or just how, walk. I don't know how it worked. I think you just pulled it along, really. But anyway, all I, <laughs> remember, all I remember was it was as big as me and it was really scary and it was like, oh, what's Santa doing this to me for? <laughs> and so, so you reckon you were two or three and you loved that doll? like that. No, I didn't love it. You hated no, it? No, Did it scare no. you? It was just something that was like, Oh, what 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 have I been given this for? And um, yeah, it's something that I never ever played with. But anyway, it was it's stuck in my mind. So was clearly. it that scary doll in the corner yeah. that's going to attack you at night? It absolutely was. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get really started, yep. what's the best ever Janine Marnie story? What's the what's your oh. go to like fun whatever? What's your go to story? Oh gosh, like. Coming from the background that I've had, which is not what you've covered, but I do have a few um, interesting stories. Yeah, come I'm on, what's s- the best one? Well, I've worked in family violence most of my oh, life. Oh, wow, there. Yeah, so that's an interesting <laughs> Let's get started there. <laughs> but um, it's actually a story I recalled recently, which um, goes back a fair way, but I, I, I still remember it so clearly because I was so cranky with the police that I was working with that my colleague thought that I was about to get arrested. Oh, <laughs> so, really? Yeah. No, no like it was, we were working with um, police. Um, the the offender was the head of the underworld for Sydney Road in Melbourne. So okay. back in the day, I don't know if you remember, know about Melbourne, yeah, but Sydney indeed, Road the was the hub of crime yep. in Melbourne and he was the head of that gang. And he had a remote property out at Nagambi and that's where he kept his family. Anyway, my colleague and I had to go out with police to get some of her possessions. She'd come into refuge. And the, the, 
copper got out of the car and, goes and said to me, well, I'm not going in. He's got a whole hallway full of guns and if he's in there, you want to go in? Off you go. Oh, that was I'm nice of the copper, wasn't it? And I'd been up all night at the hospital with a client and was not in the mood and he grabbed a bulletproof vest out of the back of the car, threw it at me and said, there you go. And I just <laughs> grabbed it and threw it back and said, there you go, it's your job, you get in there. And my, my colleague was absolutely having a meltdown. But anyway, he was so shocked he, he went in. But yeah, I've got... A lot Did they get him? Can't leave the story. Well, he wasn't in there. Oh, wasn't police. he? So it wasn't as you know. There was no major shootout or anything. I can't. I can't. Put you could have embellished that. that so much better. Well, okay. Well, I will next time. Well, it's really interesting because when I was reading and that introduction I read of you, I did that on purpose because mm. I know a lot more about what you actually mm. do, and this is something that we're going to get right into in a, in a couple of minutes. But sure. I find the way you tell your stories and the way that there is so so many people will listen and it can actually change lives and that's something I just want to prep people for because it is something that is close to my heart and it's close to a lot of people's hearts out there that uh, in regards to the whole domestic violence piece and everything the amazing work that you do in regards to that so we'll go into that shortly but where were you born Bendigo Bendigo yeah central victoria school what was your first school Gravel Hill Primary. Gravel Hill. Gravel it sounds Hill. like a really small little place, was it? Oh, no. It was probably the biggest primary oh, school. Oh, there you go. Bendigo was a historically a mining yeah, town, so that's clearly right. a lot of gravel. And Fair call. Gravel Hill. <laughs> gravel yeah, well, let's Hill. go there. Yeah, very, very creative name. And what sort of kid were you in primary school? Were you was, good, bad? I was very quiet. Naughty? No, I was shy. You were shy? Yeah, I, I was very shy. And um, Sisters, brothers? I had a sister. Two brothers that were all younger than me. So you're the oldest? Yeah. 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 And mum and dad? Yeah. They're both born in Bendigo. And, born in um, and what did they do they as you were growing their up? their whole lives. Mum just passed away recently, but oh, sorry spent about that. their whole life there. Yeah. And what did they do while you were growing up? Mum was, before she was married, a primary teacher. Okay. Um, but back in those days, once you got married, you had to resign. Oh, did um, you really? Yeah. Okay. And, and if you wanted to teach, you had to go back to being bottom of the... Really? At least if you're a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. No, a um, bloke could go straight back in as the boss. Well, they didn't even have to leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Clearly, they were already principled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, no, mum, mum then finished up and she became a, a full-time mum. Which is the hardest job on the planet. Absolutely. Indeed. And um, dad started off in banking. Okay. And then his family bought the local produce store. Okay. he then went in to, to manage that and then... As his father got older, um, took over. Took it over and that sort of Yeah. Because my grandfather was the um, manager of Myers and one oh, of okay. board directors of Myers and he bought it as an investment and yep. put dad in there to run it. And dad stayed there till he retired. But he serviced like all the farmers from right around um, central Victoria, even right down to the, the border of South Australia and down into Gippsland. And wow. Yeah, yeah. So it was a big. A big thriving thing. little shop. Absolutely, yeah. So and so do you think you were born, uh, brought up uh, rich, poor, meat, just a normal Aussie family? How did you see yourself? Uh, look, I think very early on, mum and dad had really very, very little money. Yep. Uh, mum wasn't working and dad was on a, a, a low wage. was way. working in a shop. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, Yeah, so we, we definitely didn't have, have money then, but dad worked hard and was very you know, astute with money. So I think by the time I was a teenager, I would say we were comfortable. So isn't yeah. it funny though, you like, uh, I look now and my, my wife always says to me, our kids are, oh, they, just, they just don't understand. I said, yeah, they don't because that was us. 
Absolutely. I wear the ones that have given them this life. Totally. Given them this life. When I was a kid, we had nothing. We didn't know any different. No. Like, that's the thing. You don't know whether you're rich or you're poor or whatever. But at the same time, you didn't miss out on nothing. Well, you compare to, to what your peers are. Yeah, And exactly. so my kids look at what their peers were at school. And yeah. Overseas holidays, <laughs> exactly. tasks, parades, birthday. And it's like, yeah, well, that's what we get. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. And, and it's, it's not what you get. No. Like, most of the world don't get that at all most of australian kids yeah, of course don't get that that's an absolute privilege to have you know a good education to have a, a i also wouldn't do it any other way for them no no <laughs> look I, I just figure what i can give my kids what opportunity i can give them as well as teaching them yeah, how, of how to you know earn an income how to budget how to, and all that sort of, yeah, all that, but also how to care stuff. yeah like of course to, like giving is also about caring yeah of course and so if you show that you know if you if you can give and support others then that's a, a value that's something dear. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree 100% on that. So we go from Gravel Hill Primary and mm. we graduate from there. Where do we go next? Where's we high school? We go to Flora Hill High. Flora. <laughs> so we're going from the gravel to the flora. Yeah. And, and then we go to Bendigo High. Because <laughs> in Bendigo, they have the American system of having a junior uh, middle and a school? senior high. Oh, okay. Yeah. So junior high, I did at Flora Hill High. So yep. back in those days, from one to four. And then senior high, form five and six, I did um, at Bendigo High. So were you still the quiet girl in the corner through the whole piece? To- or Totally. Really? All the way through to the end of year 12? Yes. And were your siblings like that as well? Um, probably not as much as me. Okay. Yeah, they're probably a bit more out there than I was. And then we decided, so through this whole time, are you, what's going on in your head? Are you thinking, I'm going to be a teacher like mum or I'm going to own a shop or I want to go to uni and I want to break out? What, what's going through your head? Definitely did not want to um, be a teacher. Yeah. I don't know why because my middle daughter is now doing teaching and I think that's a great thing. Um, and part of what I did with family violence was set up a school for kids who'd been impacted by trauma. So education is very, important. very important. Yeah, teaching yeah. was not my calling. Yeah, fair call. Um, and I did work in Myers right through uni. So, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't mind working in a shop and get the perks of getting, you know, first, <laughs> the discounts. First, first pick of what comes in <laughs> and the discounts, which, you know, that was pretty cool. Um, no, I, I really knew that I wanted to do something different. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't quite sure what it was that I wanted to do. So, okay. yeah. And did you have a big group of mates that you hung out with or obviously being a lot quieter? Um, were you a lot on your own a lot or how did you how did you handle the whole friendship thing? At high school? Yeah. Um, no, I had, had quite a few friends at senior high. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I came from a very conservative family and, and going out and partying is, was not on the, the list not of allowed. that I was allowed. And was that a religion do. thing or was that more just that? No, just conservative. More of a strict type very family. Strict, yeah, very, yeah, okay. very strict, very, very strict. But then I got to uni and it was like, yes. <laughs> okay, bad <laughs> it's luck. time to party. Bad luck, I'm 18, <laughs> I'm out there. I'm just going to make up for all that lost time and I'm going to party have to hope my children don't listen to this podcast. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. No, no, no. I um, discovered that, you know, you could actually get out there and enjoy life a little more than I had previously. So I did. That's good. Yeah. So what uni did you go to? Well, it was um, Latrobe Uni now, but back yep. then it was Bendigo College of Advanced Education, which okay. is... Sounds posh. Yeah. No, not definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not posh. It was in Bendigo. Come and did on. you stay at home? <laughs> yes, I yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. But you still got to party, so that was all right. I'm 18 now. 
Exactly. My daughter's like that at yeah. the moment. Mind you, the <laughs> day that I finished, I yeah. had my car packed and I was off to Melbourne to live. Oh, I, 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 I still say now it took me 20 years to escape Bendigo. Nothing against Bendigo. No, of It just wasn't not. where I wanted to live anymore. And that's like <laughs> me. I grew up on a small town on the central coast of New South Wales and the day I could leave, I left. Yeah. But, and once again, it wasn't because you loved, didn't love the people or the mm. town. It's the fact you couldn't do bugger all there. So it's like, let's that's go to the right. big smoke. Was, I just wanted to explore <laughs> and get out there and find out what else was out there in the world other than, you know, what was in Bendigo. So your degree you did interests me. Because mm-hmm. a Bachelor of Arts, but then you're focused in psychology and accountancy. Yes. Well, my dad Why? wanted me to do accountancy. Okay. He thought that was a very sensible Oh, yes. Yeah, so my mum wanted me to be a bank manager. Yeah. So, Hearing that. Um, and I did not, but <laughs> I was quite good at it. So I thought, well, I'll just keep the peace and I'll do what I want to do, which was psychology, mm-hmm. and I'll do accountancy as well, which Fair surely enough. that will come in handy at some stage. And it did. <laughs> it really has. And I'm very grateful for that now. Because I think understanding business, yes. no matter what aspect of your life that you, you head into, mm-hmm. um, it comes in very, very handy. So, like, my first job was in government and you wouldn't think that that accountancy background would be handy. But I was managing multi-million dollar budgets and handing out big grants to the community sector and understanding financials and looking at the, the financials of organisations to make sure they were viable and that they were budgeting and the rest. It was cru- crucial. So when that's I'm why everyone needs to learn accounting. Totally. That's why everyone needs to learn how to read this stuff. And this is the bit that really pisses me off about schooling mm. is they don't teach you the fundamentals. Absolutely. So these kids leave and then they'll go and do their Bachelor of Psychology, for instance, but then not have any idea how to read a financial statement. And it yeah. scares me actually like moving forward that if they're not taught these fundamentals, like well, I teach my kids because yeah. – they need to know. <laughs> that's well, it's one of those it's things, your, isn't your, it? your personal finances or yep. whether it's as part of your, your work. But every business, whether it's community sector, whether it's corporate world or whether it's government, all run on a financial basis. They, they do. They all have to um, run in a way that is financially viable. So, you know, unless you understand the compliance around finances yep. and the continuity of a business – no matter what you're in, it's not going to work if you don't have those basic fundamental understandings. It's so true. And to to learn that at uni was obviously a good space because then oh. from uni, where did we go? What was our first job? In the government, Commonwealth government. Commonwealth government. Yeah, How did you get that? position, just applied through the pathways that you did back then. Yeah. And um, yeah, was fortunate to get in. And so that was as a graduate program? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And um, where was that? In Victoria? Yeah, Melbourne. Okay. Melbourne. But I also, um, as my final year doing psychology, I had to do a thesis and that's when I decided to do something on family violence and refuges because they had only just opened. and The refuges? Yeah. The, the very first refuges in Australia were just opening up around that stage. There were only a handful in Melbourne and Sydney. Mm-hmm. And nobody had ever done a student placement in them. Oh, and wow. And nobody had ever really done any research yeah. in that space and so you know it's always been my thing to do something that's different you don't want to reinvent wheels so yeah, of course. I you know found ways and means to find a refuge and um yeah which was an interesting path because clearly they didn't disclose addresses or anything no then. of course yeah. but anyway convinced them to give me a, a placement and um yeah did that and do you remember the first person you ever saw in the refuge Maybe not the first person, the but, first. but back in those days, there are very clear memories of some of the people that I worked with. And I actually went in my first, 
placement was working um, as a kids worker. Okay. And it's always been my passion in working in family violence has been about making a difference for kids. And it's why I stayed in that sector for yeah. such a long time. Basically because working with kids, you just see the horrific impact. And kids are almost invisible and voiceless in that space. Are. We keep hearing... Especially back then as well. Like, oh, totally. It was it's even worse. Men's versus women's issue. Yeah. And we forget that 75% of people in Australia experiencing the impact of family violence are kids. And that stays with them for life. And that's yeah, not course. mentioned either. So, but yeah, it would have been interesting kids, back then. kids I remember. Because they then. were the lucky ones. They were sort of the lucky ones. In, in a way, because no one went to refuges or no one went. They were just, a lot of kids grew up stuck in that for life. Yeah. And a lot of kids grew up with no options. That's right. So the fact that some of these, and, and I'm not saying they're nice places, but some of these refuges and places where people got to go, I think were amazing for the time. Mm, because yeah. they actually did save lives. They did. They still do. Absolutely. Some amazing people out there at the moment. Yeah. So you you get through that sort of placement piece and you've you've obviously you've got your job and you're doing and now we're sitting there going in the back of your head always must be I want to make that difference I want to make that change I don't want to be doing this thing for the federal government I want to be doing my own thing it was interesting because I broke the rules when you work for the Commonwealth government oh, you're not allowed to have another job oh, and there I went, you go. yeah well bad luck I'm going to stay and work part-time in the refuge so yeah, I yeah. worked um, a night shift and I worked on weekends okay. in, in the refuge because I wanted to keep understanding what needed to be done to make a difference and that's where you make a difference is the government. Yep. And at that stage, refuges weren't funded. But lo and behold, the government department that I was working for was then appointed as the first government department to fund family violence oh, and homelessness. And I got one of the first jobs as a project officer in that team. So not And only did they know what you were doing on the weekends? No, of course. Oh really? They didn't. <laughs> no, I would have lost my job. So but I thought it was really important because I was in there making decisions about yeah. what happened for these people and the services that were funded for them. And you know actually what is happening as and opposed to other getting, people that don't have yeah, a clue. I was getting that lived experience and, you know, we call it co-design now, but back yeah. then it was sitting chatting to women and children, seeing what they were going through, understanding the barriers they faced, the challenges, the you know, the violence, the impact of that, the trauma, and understanding that the only differences that could be made were by changing things in government. So the thing that... I probably am most proud of in my time in government was I fought for years to get children's workers funded because I just saw all these kids yeah. and the government kept saying, oh, no, but this is about the women. And I kept saying, no, but there's all these kids. Yeah. Well, we don't know that. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <You> do. <laughs> I do. I don't. It's come, mostly kids come here on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> see these kids. Anyway, eventually the, the last thing that I got through before I resigned was – Funding for children's workers, oh, which well I was really excited about. So that's awesome. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. So during all this time, obviously you've got kids. Did husband? Yeah, no, I actually um, got married in my late twenties. Okay, had three children. Yeah, very quickly. So at one stage, I had three kids under four, which was pretty. We did that. We did four busy. under six. Yeah, it's yeah. Stupid. Yeah. Well, it is. <laughs> That's good you know, now, though. Like, it's amazing one, now. <laughs> my first daughter, Stacey, was pretty hard work. And I yeah. thought, well, if I give myself a bit of a break, I'm just not going to go back. And I wanted to That's have brothers and sisters. So yeah. I better pop them out pretty damn quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I did. And did you find, because of the work you were doing, did that make it, like, did that, 
make it harder or like because obviously you're seeing you you get married in your late twenties and you've been dealing with domestic violence for all this time and you've been dealing with kids and it must make you think differently about things. Well, I actually when I had Stacy um, was when I stopped working for the Commonwealth Government mm-hmm. because my job by that stage I was um, acting state manager. I was having to travel back and forth to Canberra, to Sydney yeah. very regularly. And I just thought, well, it's just not going to be an easy thing to balance. So I left and went out and worked in the community sector back in family violence. Mm-hmm. Um, the service I worked for was the very, very first service ever to bring in flexible work arrangements for parents. Oh, I there said, you go. I need to bring my child <laughs> to work. <laughs> so, yeah, that lasted for a year bringing Stacey to work because, you know, managing her picking up paper clips and trying to eat them and working was not easy. So, um, look, it it was difficult um, in a lot of ways um, juggling, you know, being a working mum. Yeah. But that's what every working of mum course. does, juggles that. Um, what I found was really, really interesting was that I got to see mums constantly being really challenged by things that were just far, far more difficult than the challenges I had. If I had just been at home with the life that I would have had um, being a mum in maybe a different type of job, I would have thought, like, oh, my gosh, this is so hard. That's what I mean. Like, you take work home with you, don't you? put it into context, though, seeing other mums and the challenges that they had going through really um, difficult times, leaving abusive and violent relationships – Becoming technically homeless, yeah. having to leave their family, their friends, or their possessions, their kids leaving their schools, their you know toys, and the challenge that that complete loss of everything, as well as dealing with fear and trauma, and all of the impacts that that life had given their children, trying to be the best mum that they could be, um, to for their kids. It just put it so into context mm. for me that I was so blessed to be able to be in my own home, give my kids a, a, a life that they deserve, home, mm. which is what every child deserves. Yeah, 100%. every kid deserves a safe home yep. in a safe community with every opportunity to reach their potential, and that's what so many kids in Australia don't have. Yes, and I think that the the constant focus we have on looking at family violence as a gendered issue is forgetting the children because boys and girls as children and young people experience family violence. And so it's it's in that context that I think we need to step back as a community and go, why are we not putting children first? Oh, 100%. Why are we not saying these kids are like oh, well over a million kids that we know of live in homes where they don't feel safe, where they feel scared. Why as a community are we letting that happen? Because those kids take that experience right through their um, teenage years and into adulthood and then they're adults and they can't understand, well, why am I feeling anxious or depressed or why do I feel like I need a drink at the end of every day or why am I... They're learned you know, behaviours. Well, it's it's not even that. It's, it, it, it is that, but it's trauma. Yeah. And you look at... that. Even one experience of family violence, and I'll call it that, yep. but really family violence is control, abuse or violence. Yep. One experience... It doesn't have to be someone hitting someone. It can be PT- anything. Well, it can trigger PTSD. Yeah, and then PTSD falls down to all those other things. And we go, why? Why are we feeling like this? Well, if you look at what PTSD is or trauma and what it can you know, impact as, as adults, 
they don't even understand why they're feeling that way because we don't tell the community that a result of, of living in these circumstances can be trauma. And adult women and adult men can still have this trauma and not understand it, but they got it as kids. Yep. And, and then so that causes more issues as you as you move things forward. Yeah. It's 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 interesting because you're you, like I learned everything from my dad. Mm. Right? My old man. But at the same time he did shit that he shouldn't have done. But at the same time I know that's bad. Mm. Like I know what I should and shouldn't do. Not the fact and that's because he taught me that. Like, I still open the car door for my wife. Yeah. Like, and people say, what do you do that for? Because that's what my dad taught me. Yeah. <laughs> Just little things. I don't put my elbows on the table. I, like, um, wait till everyone's finished their meal. Just little, like, things we learnt back in the day because that's what we were taught. Absolutely. Yeah? And at the same time, some of that's traumatic. And if I hadn't dealt with it, some of the trauma that I went through, which is not bad compared to a lot of this shit, right? But at the same time, if you don't get to deal with any of this stuff, you become that trauma. And therefore, it affects your marriage, it affects your kids, it affects all these different things. And I think it's really, really, really important that people need to get the chance to talk to people. Absolutely. And I think that there's two things that I'd like to change in how we talk about things. Yep. Because we always label. We do. Everyone gets labelled. We we, we label like people who live with these difficult circumstances as as a victim of family violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And that label just sticks with you and you don't know what to do with it. Yep. But I'd like to say, you know, if we can get people to look forward and say, change your story and by doing that, you can change your children's story. And change is, to a degree, a choice. Like you were just talking about, you've made choices. You understand what's right and wrong and you've made choices and made changes in your life to become the person that you want to be. Indeed. So, you know, change your story, take yep. some responsibility. 100%. And by that doing that, you change your child's story. Yes. Their lived experience becomes different to what it could have been if you don't. Indeed. The other thing that I think we do is constantly, again with labels, talk about mental health and trauma and, and it's stigmatised. It's, it's a label that historically has been quite negative. You get a physical injury and mm-hmm. it's like, yep, you go off, you, you, know, you break your leg, you get recovery. You get, you know, it takes you six weeks and you do this and you do that and then you can walk and run again. If we can start looking at, you know, the things that happen to us as being emotional injury and we start thinking about healing and recovery in the same way we do as physical injury and we start looking at this as looking forward and changing the – if we're changing our story and we're changing our children's story, we start looking at this as an injury emotionally and how do we recover? What do we do? Look for the the ways to recover, and they are out there. Like there, there's ways to recover from trauma. But first of all, we have to understand what it is. What yeah. is an emotional injury? Let's get it out there. Let's do it through a lot of people that you deal with on a daily basis. Sports stars, yeah, like people in sport. They are, you know, you're renowned. You, you know, my favorite sports AFL. Mm-hmm. You've got a physical injury. Yep. Oh my gosh, it's down to the, the Sydney Swans degree. had a lot of mental injuries last weekend. That's all I just want to throw out there. I'm a Sydney Swans fan. Well, you know, I I, <laughs> I, I, I was fortunate enough to go on a on a, uh, a week away with Paul Roos. Oh, nice, great man. Um, yeah, absolute great uh, to, human to, being. To Fiji, and he talked a lot about the Sydney Swans. I learned a lot about physical injury and how absolutely detailed the clubs are about yep. identifying. Injury and recovery pathways. For and injuries, not for mental oh, industries or emotional. But then you, you, you don't think of, you know, 
Sports people, if you get a physical injury, attached to that as an emotional injury, it's the fear of what if I lose my spot? What if I don't recover? What if I don't play as well? And that emotional injury is so important that any emotional injury, the recovery is at the same time. You look at if you, you get sick, if you get cancer, if you get, you know, you have a heart attack, the emotional injury that sits with the physical injury. We don't work on that. We don't help the person recover from that emotional injury in the same way, in the same timelines as we do a physical injury. Yeah, because people don't see it the same way. It's not viewed the same. It's not, but why not? It should be, 100%. Absolutely. And if we do, we're helping everybody. Like I'll use sports people as an example. If we identified emotional injury in, in sporting clubs at the same way and same time we identified physical injuries, Imagine the opportunity for those players to hit their potential quicker, better than if they did To recover. Yeah, and I've talked to elite sports people who say the thing that's really often held them back is their emotional injuries, not just attached to those uh, physical injuries that they've got and the fears that come with that, but other emotional injuries they take into their sport. They might have been bullied at school. They might have lived with family violence and they don't talk about it. They might have had somebody close to them pass away. Mm -hmm. This emotional injury, if it's not identified at the earliest time by themselves or their sporting club, it's going to stop them reaching the potential. They've got to be that amazing star. So, unfortunately, I never reached those lofty heights of sporting prowess, Mm. but my kids did. My kids were elite in sport and they they were in the Victoria Institute of Sport. They represented Australia as juniors. And I saw the absolute focus on physical ability and sporting ability and I saw the total ignoring of emotional injury and impact and the kids that um, could have reached the top and the, 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 the number of kids that could have got there would have been so much bigger yeah. if that was taken into the mix and so yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. I'm listening to a podcast at the moment. I think it's called uh, Three Man and something. Anyway, they're interviewing Ben Simmons. And Ben Simmons is, uh, as most people know, amazing basketball player. Uh, he was in the Philadelphia 76ers and then he had a, a substantial emotional injury. And he had a back injury as well, right? So he didn't play the whole of last season. They transferred him to the Brooklyn Nets to go to a different team and he's now on the road to recovery. But the thing is, now he's actually starting to come out. Everyone was saying, oh, he's a disgrace, he's this. Mm. All this negativity for this bloke who said, I can't play for the Boomers because I'm not in the right headspace, mm. right? Oh, he's let his country down, he's done this. It's not, this bloke's actually injured. Like if he had said, my back's done, I can't play, oh, okay, I hope you get better. But imagine if we had it that the community accepted oh. physical injury and emotional injury 100%. in the same way. Because not only then... If we've got a sports star like that saying, I've got an emotional injury, mm-hmm. I need time out, same as I would if I had a physical yep. injury, this is what I'm doing, I'm recovering, it takes away the stigma and the the shame that sits for others in the community. Oh, my God, if Ben Simmons can say, I've got exactly. an emotional injury and this is what I'm doing, oh, I've got that too. And this I is where the problem was because they said it's a mental health problem. That's what the, the way they announced it. Ben Simmons has a mental health problem. Everyone's going, well, I'm fucked in the head too. Like, I've got a mental health problem. I just get on with my day. And he's lost $20 million in wages because he refuses to do this and refuses to that. And all this negative shit that keeps getting thrown at this poor kid. He's 26 years old. Yeah. That keeps getting thrown at this kid. 
yep, he's an elite athlete. He gets paid $180 million. He gets this, he gets that. Wow, he's worked his nuts off to get to that point. Yep. And at the same time, he's, now he actually has a different type of injury, but not recognised. No. And that's what put this bloke out for a whole year. And look at the loss to the club as well. Look. Yeah. We're talking about the impact of Ben. Yep. Which is significant. Mm-hmm. But look at the impact on his club, yep. his team, the sport in general. Everyone around him. The, the broader community of basketball. Yeah. Now imagine if it was done differently. Yes. And he spoke out courageously about his emotional injury. Just has, that's what he's doing now. Yeah. And the club went, yeah, that's... We back you 100% yeah, and we're and going to help you recover. And this is our recovery plan and uh-huh. this is how we're going to support you and this is how we see the community needs to embrace yep. emotional injury recovery. We've got a whole new approach in the community where people who were too scared to speak out about their mental health and they're losing their jobs, they're losing their family, their relationships are breaking down, they're losing income. If we change that approach where emotional injury was recognised really early, we all knew what it was, we knew what to do about it, how to reach out, people supported us, our workplaces supported us, we got back on track recovery-wise really quickly and back into the life we should have had and ahead reaching that potential that we all have yeah, so much earlier. And the fact is it's okay to speak. It teaches people that it's good to talk. It's actually, Mm. it's okay that you've got an injury. Like I've injured my knee. Mm. And the fact is that to get that knee fixed, I've got to do this exercise, that exercise, that exercise. If I don't do them, that's on me. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm the idiot that's not going to be able to walk properly for the next month. But at the same time, from an emotional point of view, if they give them the same, do this exercise or talk this or do yeah. that or see this psychologist or psychiatrist or whoever, the person you need to speak to to help you with you that injury, as opposed to a physiotherapist, I'm going to speak to a psychologist. Yeah. What's the difference? And the thing is what we call it. We're not calling it a mental health, health problem. problem. <laughs> We're calling it an emotional injury. Love it. Just that language in itself Changes, changes the how you feel about yourself and how other people feel about you. Yes. So language and how we communicate things is so important. That's the first thing we need to change. We well, the big thing is it saves lives. Problem. Yeah, it we saves need to lives. Say it's an injury. Yeah. How do we fix it? I uh, I invest in a company called Neuro Nirvana, and what they do is they try and turn. Uh, in mind sites, the negative into a positive. So and when you go to a mind site, they say you cannot do this, you cannot do that, you cannot do this, you can't do that, the safety, the safety. So when those guys go home, this is banged into them for a whole week, they sit there, the kids, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do this, has an effect on their relationship. And it affects them mentally, yeah? The big thing with that is all this negativity then leads to potential suicide. And there's a massive number of suicides that happen in mind sites. And we're trying to make a difference by stopping that. And by stopping that, by turning it into positive, actually, if you did this way, you'd be good. Mm. If you did it that way, you'd be fine. You're not going to have any issues. But that's all around wording. And the thing with it is that in a mind site, and this I don't know if this is common knowledge, but if someone dies on the mind site, the whole site shuts down. It costs them millions and millions of dollars. If someone dies back in their donger on the camp, it's not classed as the mind site, so it continues. So it doesn't shut the mind down. So these guys that are hanging themselves on the back doors of their donger and the effect that that has on everyone around them, their family, the people around them, all that sort of stuff, because they have emotional injury and they're not being looked after because, oh, I'm fucked in the head, I've got a mental health problem. Yeah, you look at so many industries like that. I've got a friend yeah. who works in mining who was just telling me a couple of weeks ago exactly a similar story mm. how 
um, someone in his team died, the answer for the company back then was go to the pub and have a few beers. Yep. I've got a lot of friends that are in police, um, friends in the military. It's the same deal. Um, maybe not so much now, but historically. Yeah, and that, for that sure. history still sits with us. Like, you know, I had a friend who's a police officer who, you know, saw three young men killed in tragic circumstances. There was no support, no follow-up, no counselling for him. It was basically go down to the pub after work with a few of your mates and yeah, have a drink. Have a chat about it. And, you know, I've got a, a, a memory of a, a very good friend who was a, a federal police officer, Victorian police officer before that, who um, ended up taking his life uh, tragically, two little kids, mm. um, based on the, the horrific things that he'd seen and lived with during his career, serving our community, like incredible bravery that this man had shown um, both here and overseas in his roles, you know, taking care of people in our community and our country. And yet when he needed help, when he had an emotional injury because of that, it was like, well, I'm sorry you're not fit for the job anymore. Off you yeah. go. Now, oh. I know. So this is a man who's dedicated his life to our community to and keeping us others. safe. Wow. And because of the impact of what happened and what he saw, instead of... Whilst going, doing that. Oh, my goodness, you've done so much for us. We're going to help you heal from that emotional injury. We're going to do whatever we can. It was like, no, we'll... Firstly, we'll put you on a desk job because you're no good at doing your job anymore. And now we've done our little bit of time showing us, you know, you, you, that we've you know, done the right thing by putting you on a desk job and now you're out the door. Now, what does someone in that circumstance do? It's the same in the military where we've, we've got, you know, uh, the, the big review into um, veteran suicide at the yep. moment. And you hear these horrific stories of veterans who've left and then taken their life because their whole life has been serving our country, mm -hmm. looking after our people, and yet the emotional injury they've got from that is not recognised and they leave and they feel they have no purpose. They're, you know, um, impacted by anxiety and depression and all of those things associated with trauma. They don't understand why. They're not given the support to recover and... The result is we lose incredibly good men and women who've done everything in their lives to support us and we've abandoned them at the time they most need us. And this happens in so many, you know, we, we're talking here very high-profile industries yeah, that we all course. know about. Happens but this happens in so many. You look at COVID, frontline workers, how many nurses, doctors, social workers, teachers are now impacted by the stress of having to deal with frontline work in COVID who aren't working now, the impact on them, their mm -hmm. families, their kids, their communities, it's not being looked at. There's, it's, it's so many workplaces don't value people enough to say when you're doing it hard because of emotional injury, instead of wrapping support around you and helping you recover because you're a really valuable person and a value employee, we're going to go, oh, how do we get you out of here as quick as yeah, we can exactly. without paying out work cover? Yep. That's the mentality in a lot of workplaces. And That's atrocious. I'm not saying it's all workplaces because there are some amazing workplaces, yeah. but they're the ones we should hold up on the pedestal and go, they're the example, let's follow them. That's what we should be doing. Because that's you, you look at the opposite and it's really a bad financial decision to not support people. Of course. Like if you don't recognise emotional injury early, you've got absenteeism, you've got sick leave, you've got people not performing at their best, yep. trying to cover up that they're not able to do their job as well as they want to or can. 
and then they leave and you lose their knowledge and their expertise. You've got all those recruitment costs. It's a really bad business decision not to support emotional injury. That's we so do true. It all the time in our community. And that comes from government as well. It does. And the fact that the government doesn't recognise this shit and tries to hide stuff. Mm. And you look at now, there's a major problem with Queensland hospitals. Yeah. Um, that's been there for years. It's not just happened last Thursday that we've decided we're going to now ramp uh, ambulances for eight hours, 40 hours. It's just that it's coming out now because all the COVID news and that's they've finished reporting on that shit. Now they've actually moved across to this one. But the thing Ramping's is... Ramping's an issue in every state in <coughs> Australia. And it it's not is. just COVID. Ramping was an issue for as long as I can remember working in the community sector yep. at Frontline. Forever it's been a problem. And I know that police and, and paramedics have tried for a long time to say to government, we need to address this issue. We should be out doing our jobs. But instead we're ramped at hospitals. But wouldn't you love this? The health minister stands up... I know there's a problem, I'm going to fix it. Mm. And this is how I'm going to fix it. How good would that be? As opposed <laughs> to sticking their head in the sand and going, no, not my fault. Oh, that was from the previous government or that was from this. Fuck that, just fix the problem. Like, mm. And the people will love you for that. People mm. will love you the fact you put your hand up and say, I notify that there's an issue here with emotional injury. Yeah, mm. that's my number one priority now. COVID's yeah. ruined the whole population, so let's fix that. Yeah, it's only an injury. It's not a problem. It's an injury, so let's get that injury better. Well, you know, COVID has been a dreadful, dreadful thing for our community. But you know what? It's opened the door for people to understand that emotional injury can happen to anybody. Yes. At any time. Many, many people who would never have thought that mental health, as we call it, could impact them had it happened to them during COVID. Of course they, they saw did. someone really close to them have it happen. And so emotional injury, like a physical injury, can be just around the corner for you at any time and you've got no idea. You don't know that you're not going to trip over the gutter and break your leg tomorrow, mm -hmm. just as much as you don't know that something that might happen to you might give you a severe emotional injury. doesn't matter which injury you get, we should have the supports in place in our community to deal with it really quickly. 100% we should, and that starts at government level. It has to. Yeah. Because if the government don't do anything about it, then... We can yell and scream and shout from the rooftops, but we can't do anything unless they're going to actually do something about it. Yeah. And I think the only way to do that is to make them listen. And the only way to make them listen is to change the government, well, <laughs> is, is to yell and scream loud enough so they listen. You know, the, what I found <laughs> working in the community sector, yeah. and like for a long time I did the lobby and go and meet with the bureaucrats. Oh, they're all full of shit. Well, the thing is it doesn't work. <laughs> no. Then I learnt the trick. You go to the media and yep. you get someone in the media who thinks what you're saying means something mm -hmm. and they talk about it and then the people in the community go, hmm, we agree. Because they and listen to that And all of a sudden, yep. then <laughs> politicians so go, oh, votes. Yes. Or all money. We must listen to the media. So the power is in the voice of the people. And I the agree. voice of the people comes through the media. Yep. So people like yourselves can make a huge change by talking about things. Yeah, and without getting people doubt. out there going, Gosh, you're making a bit of sense. Yeah. And then their voice becomes your voice and you get that voice to change government's opinion and, and, and policy and how they find it. takes things. a long time, but at least if we start it, we start it, don't we? We, we can make it happen. Sometimes it takes a long time and sometimes it can be really quick. <laughs> Let's do the really, really quick one. Quick. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but change is a choice. It is. Like, and it ch it's not just a choice of an individual like you and I. Change is a choice of government. And if you've got a government goes shit, things aren't working here, we've got to change things. It's yep. their choice to do it or their choice to ignore it yes. and pretend it's not happening at their peril. 
Indeed. Because then they're out next time if people get cranky enough with them for ignoring it. So yes. be brave. Realise a change is needed. Make the brave choice. Do something about it. Listen to people at the at the coalface. Yes. The lived experience. They so I always listen to my wife because she talks a lot of sense and I don't usually listen, but I pretend I do. Anyway, I do listen to my wife. And my <laughs> wife said to me, I always wanted to go into politics. And she actually said, I don't want to be a politician's wife. That was the only reason I didn't go into politics. And then she said, you can make more of an impact outside of politics than you can on the inside. She said, because you can say what you want, you can say when you want, and you can tell who the fuck you want to tell it to. And it was like, actually, that's a good point. I'll take that. I do listen to my wife. So, there you go. But the key key to that, though, is that that's what everyone needs to understand. Like, once you learn that actually you've got a voice, use it. And Once you use it, you can make a difference. And that's why I think I'll, I'll take it back to what I spoke about children. Children yep. can most often, especially the most vulnerable and at-risk children, are invisible and they are voiceless. It's people that recognise that and can see what is going on for those kids that needs to be their voice. Yes. It's the same as like you, we, we see quite a lot of women um, who've been through family violence now speaking out. They weren't allowed to before. They're being the voice for others who yet haven't got their voice. Yeah. And that's the power that you and I have got in this interview. Yes. We've got ability from the voices we've heard to be their voice. To tell their stories. that's what I'm hoping that today, like I spoke earlier about being really, really shy. Yeah. And back then I didn't have a voice. And it wasn't until I got put into being the chair of the board of Domestic Violence Victoria, which was the peak body for all the family violence services, Mm -hmm. which was like, okay, I'll do that because it's like that's an important job. What Mm -hmm. I didn't realise was that meant that I would also be the person doing all the media (laughs) interviews (laughs) and giving all the speeches at uh, annual meetings and all the rest of it. It So the quiet girl from Bendigo can't be quiet anymore. I know, but then it was like, okay, get over yourself, Janine. This isn't actually about you. Nobody really cares about you or what you know, is is um, coming out of your mouth unless it's important enough that they need to listen. Yes. And what's important is being the voice of all those voices that you've heard that don't have a voice. And so, <laughs> so true. the way I speak in, in interviews or, you know, when I'm put on the spot um, around a, quite a controversial topic like family violence yeah. is to go, okay, well, it's not actually about my opinion. It's not about what I think or what government should do. It's about... All those lived experiences, those voices of those women and children and teenagers and, and now men. And men. That's what I was, yeah. Yeah. And it's those voices that need to be heard. And so that's what I try to, to project. And on that you know, topic of men, like we often say it's men that are the offenders and women yeah. that are the victims. And again, labels. Like not only were there lots and lots and lots of boys that I saw that experienced control and abuses and violence, there's also a lot of men that I've met over the years in my life that have lived in relationships where they've been subjected to controlling behaviours and abusive behaviours. But that's not seen. Like, because we like to label women as victims, which does nothing for them either. No, of course. Um, and men as offenders. Um, until we take away that and say, yeah, gender inequality is, is wrong and that is an issue in itself. And yeah. it, but gender inequality is what permissions control abuse and violence to happen and it opens doors for it to happen when it's men against women. But you know what? Control, abuse and violence can sit in any 
gender in any community, in any family. It can be same-sex couples. It can be elder abuse. It can be teenagers abusing their parents. It doesn't mean it's a gendered issue all the time. Yeah. It can be either and men can equally be subjected to these sorts of behaviours and experience just as much trauma and impact as as women. The only addition is that it's often seen now to be more shameful for men to be able to raise it in, yeah. in some communities. And so very true. we need to take away those those barriers and and talk about it in a different way. And I think if we start the conversation talking about children and how do we make children safe and how do we, I guess, support those that protect them and how do we help those change the story that are putting them at risk, then we're starting from a place where everybody feels they can contribute and do something. I think the key to that is listening to the children. And yep. the way we met, obviously, through our mutual friend Summer, mm-hmm. uh, was the fact that uh, we've invested in the Impact Film Festival. Yep. And as part of that film festival, there was one of the show, one of the movies that were made by one of the kids was the fact that uh, it was a split family and they got picked up every, every weekend and they went and they're saying, look, we don't want to go, we don't want to go. And this, this is a story made by one of the kids. And it was fact they were living with dad yep. and mum was picking them up mm-hmm. and mum was taking them because she had to on a weekend. And so when they were at mum's, they were living through the abuse and all the the, the gender, uh, as we were just talking about a second ago. And the fact that this kid told this story was so much more hard-hitting than anyone else telling that story because it Absolutely. came through the kid's eyes. And it was just so interesting to watch this. It still makes me go all tingly because that story, within one minute, that's all the stories go for, told a complete story of how that kid's lived their life. Now, that's an emotional injury for that kid. Yeah, probably never told that story to anyone, but now they've had the ability to put it up and tell their story and it's now on a film that they can actually sit there and get the help that they need. And that's something I believe if we listen to the kids, then that's the way we're going to start the change. And giving kids voice and visibility is absolutely the way of the future. And, you know, talking about, you know, the impact films and summer, like, the film that I've seen that, that you produced, the which lessons. was the one around, yeah, about yeah. lessons and family violence, I think is probably one of the most powerful um, films that I've ever seen. And as I've said to you in summer, yeah. I think that should be the ad campaign for the, com- the, the Commonwealth Government right now. I agree. For the community to see, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to change the story for these kids. Yeah. Like, that is incredibly powerful. And if you and summer can get that out there and, have that as an ad campaign that everyone gets to see. That's one of our missions. That's a massive starting point. And I'll do what I can to Thank help you. Very you. Much. Thank <laughs> you very much. Yeah, it's actually really interesting because with Lessons and Jude Kelman, who actually um, directed that, um, the ability to tell that story in one minute mm-hmm. was absolutely amazing. And the fact now that we've won, I think, 13 laurels and seven film festivals just off the back of a one-minute it just shows you how impactful that is and that's obviously something that we're going to look at doing hopefully with the government making a bit of a change around that space. Mm, so nice. so that's very, very exciting. Um, we've gone on angles and rounding corners and I just that's love I this do. stuff. I just love it. <laughs> I just love it. So what's the best job you've ever had? The best job I've ever had. Like the most enjoyable year. I really love that. Oh, I've had quite a lot of different jobs, many that I haven't talked about with you. Um, and in their own way, I've really loved all of them. They've all been quite no, different and challenging. One. I know, I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting there. You'll probably, you can't go around in circles. You'll probably laugh at this one. 
But because I have worked in family violence for so long and it's always at the end of relationships and how difficult and awful they are, probably my favourite job was when I owned a restaurant and we did weddings and I was a wedding planner. Love that. So I got to be at the beginning when people were really excited (laughs) and happy and in love with each other and it was just their best day of their life and so much fun and I got to be the wedding planner. So that was... (laughs) That's full circle. Yeah, like... But I really did love that. And oh, the other thing I did, I, I did love was doing work in the, the school that we set up at yep. um, Safe Futures, the organisation that I, I ran. And just seeing little kids who'd never been able to talk about what was difficult for them just thrive. Yeah, like I just being in a place that they felt was great and it, they felt at home and they could learn in their own way and felt like they weren't the only one. You've given them an opportunity was, to live. That's yeah, amazing. it just made, made my heart shine. So, yeah, I think it's just jobs that make you feel happy. Yep. Just, yeah. I said that to all my team. I want you to want to come to work. If you don't mm. want to come here, don't, like, mm. go. Like, I'm not interested. But if you want to come here, we can make a difference to the world mm. just by the little things that we do. Yeah. So enjoy coming in the office. And if you've got an idea how to change the world, let's do it. Mm. Why wouldn't you? Sounds What's like your... an exciting place to work. <laughs> <laughs> What's your greatest achievement in life? My kids. It's always the way, isn't it? I know it, it is. I'm isn't so it proud amazing? of them. They're amazing. <laughs> so how old are they now? Um, they're 27, 29 and 31. Okay. Any little grannies? No. No? no okay. No, not even looking like they're on the horizon. Yeah, it happens later nowadays. That's, that's <laughs> fine. Whenever they're ready. But no, they're absolutely great kids. I'm so proud of them. They're, yeah. And what do they all do? Um, Stace is the managing director of a PR company. Nice. Uh, give it a plug, Tide PR. They Tide just, PR, there yeah, we go. Yeah, they just won PR Agency of the Year. Well done, um, Stace. Yeah, she's <laughs> absolutely incredible, so committed to all her clients and her staff, loves her job. Um, Amy was uh, followed in my footsteps. She was a, a social worker and yeah. specialised in working with children, um, actually worked family violence and child abuse and worked frontline right through COVID with kids who'd been abused. So Special lady. Yeah, but she's actually um, decided to go back to school. So she's now at Melbourne Uni doing her Master's in Early Childhood and Primary Teaching. So she's going to become a teacher. She's going to be a teacher. There you go. You know, I think she'll bring something quite special to that role. Because she's worked with kids that have, you know, done it really... As hard as they could. Yeah. Um, and she knows what to look for in a classroom that, you know, you, you see kids in classrooms and you might think they're the problem child or the quiet child or yeah. the underachiever. But that's often the flag that something's going on for yeah. them. Like the kid that doesn't bring their homework, ask why. Yeah. The kid that hasn't had breakfast, ask yep. why. Like something's going that's on for them. Uh, yeah, for sure. She'll get to have a different lens that she yeah, looks at teaching. And amazing. she's loving it. She's just done her placement and... Loved every moment oh, of it. Oh, that's so good. And um, my son, Tom, he's still at uni finishing off his um, degree in cybersecurity and criminology, but he's also working full-time in the finance industry and nice. absolutely loving it, loving it. So, so did Tom get uh, looked after because he had two older sisters? Well, it depends or on did what they beat him up? time frame oh, yeah. you're looking at, really. <laughs> like, as teenagers, I thought I was an absolute failure as a mum. Oh, I just we thought are they now. all hated yeah, each other. Yeah, that's where we and, are right now. Know, the girls only united in liking each other when they picked on Tom. Um, but Tom's the most easygoing person you've ever met. And now my kids are best friends. They yeah. do everything together. They go on holidays together. They go out. You know, Don't you love that? To dinner together. And you go, go, yes, I did it. And I go, yay, I didn't fail. So, yeah. uh, it's funny. We've got, uh, what are we now, 19, 18, 15 and 13. 
And, yeah, we're the same. Oh, why do they all hate each other? Then the next, oh, let's all go to the, like, frozen yogurt shop together. Like, all four of them will, like, why are they being nice to each other? What's happening? Something's going something wrong. When it starts changing, you go, ooh. Yeah, exactly, what's yeah. Going on here? But now, like, they, they do everything together. Yeah, and, my, girl, um, really my supportive girls are best buddies and they, yeah, they, they're joined at the hip. And, like, we sit there and go, we obviously did something right. Yeah. <laughs> so and that's, that's when you actually go, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's so good. I love it. Who's the person or people who have had the biggest influence on your career? career. Is there one person? No, there's not actually. Um, I think that there's there's a few. Um, in the early days, there's um, a woman, I can't even remember her name, so forget yeah. that, but I'm bad with names. But back when I started in the public service, it was really, really hard for women to get to executive yeah, level. Yeah, of course. And this woman did it and she was amazing and she was sort of the person that I looked up to and watched how how she did things. And as a result, she sort of mentored me um, in an unusual way. But anyway, as a result, from learning from her, I progressed really quickly and was, you know, ended up being probably one of the youngest state managers. So she taught me how to be brave yeah. in a workplace where you weren't Meant to expected be. to be yeah. achieving um, and to not put that self-imposed glass ceiling. Like, you know, I've had my daughter say to me, oh, then, you know, the glass ceilings. I go, the glass ceiling's only there if you put it there. Yeah. Like, it's Smash through it. Yeah, break <laughs> it. Break it. It's yours to break. Yeah. Um. So, oh, I remembered her name now, Alexis. So, Alexis was... So, do you reckon Alexis has any idea or had any idea that she was changing young girls' lives? No. No, not at all. Like, she just saw um, she had a job to do. And she was really passionate because we worked, you know funding community yeah, agencies, yeah. she was passionate about making sure that the people she put into jobs were the ones that could do it to the best of their ability to make a difference in those sectors and Fair those a- agencies. And yeah. so she didn't base it on the his- history of, you know, men progress in the public service and, and women don't. Mm. So she was one of those early women that, that did that and she'd managed to do it herself. Yeah. And then she gave other women opportunities. Opportunity. It's but not just favouring women because they were women. Not yeah. at all. She was tough. Yeah, yeah. And if men were better for the job, she gave them to if it was a woman that was better, she gave it to them. Mm. So it was all done on on, you know, your on abilities merit. and merit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um there was her. Um then there were two men that I worked with on a project when I was CEO at Safe Futures. One was an assistant commissioner of police. Um, Steve Fontana, and the other was the CEO of Ambulance Victoria, Greg Sasella. Both of those men were, I guess, visionary in the way that they saw the need to change how things were done in relation to family violence. They didn't see it as we wait till something really bad happens and then we'll respond, which is traditionally the way that police and ambulance work. Yeah. You know, they're the first responders yeah, after sure. a crisis. Yep. But they thought outside the square and they came together and worked with me to look at how do we identify family violence earlier, how do we help keep people in their own homes instead of rendering them homeless, how do we look at innovation and technology to implement responses that um, deter offenders from breaching orders. Both of them I learnt so much from. They were quite different in how they worked and their approach, but I learnt an incredible amount from both of those men, and um, you know they're both retired now, sadly, because it would be amazing if they. Do they realise how much an influence they have? Oh, probably not. I have told them, but <laughs> I, I, but I people like that just yeah, say, yeah, 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 yeah. 
I wasn't that good. I learned I, I so much from them about thinking in, in a way that's innovative and outside the square yeah. and, and, and collaboration. They both taught me that you don't have to do it in your own silo. Working collaboratively is so much more powerful. Yeah, without and doubt. And bringing together police and family violence and paramedics and, you know, the, the different groups, like, that is very, very powerful because uniting creates the change that you can't do when you're just in the silo. Yeah, I agree. The next person is probably um, yeah, unexpected. I worked in, in the US for a while in New Orleans. And I worked in a family justice centre. I was on an exchange. Mm-hmm. And the woman that ran it was a former nun. And she had decided that um, that wasn't... She was, you know, in the church for a long time, but decided it wasn't the life for her um, and decided to go into working in family violence. But she was a powerhouse. Like, she was the energizer bunny. Really? Oh, oh my gosh. She, when the, she the ditched hu- the habit and became the energizer bunny. Ooh. When... <laughs> Um, Hurricane Katrina, Katrina in yep. New Orleans, like there was only a few little family violence services in in the, the the city, and she saw she was working in one, and she saw the um, impact of the the hurricane and what it had done to families and the community and how much violence had increased, and so she went on a little mission to Washington and um, basically knocked on the door of the State Department and said, you've got to give me money. I need to set up a justice centre. I need a co-located hub to bring wow. the police and child protection and family violence services and whatever. There'd been a model set up in San Diego that was the same. She says, I need one. I need one in New Orleans and you need to fund me. And she just she basically went, give it to me or look out. <laughs> wow. They did. And she's she's an amazing woman. I just admire her so much. <laughs> she's awesome. just created change. And just led how things are done differently yeah. in, in the states around family violence. So, yeah. And, um, yeah, there's other people as well in my life, um, friends who've inspired me and, and, and given me belief in myself to, to do things that I felt I couldn't. Um, and they um, have made a big difference in, in just going, yeah, you can do this. You and I've gone, no, I can't. And they go, yes, you can. <laughs> Okay. It's that I'll support it network, isn't it? Yeah. So I could talk to you all day, but we've just <laughs> hit I the hour. talk all day. We've yes, just hit can. the hour mark. So <laughs> I always finish with some quick fire questions. Oh, completely gosh. random. Oh, no. You ready? <laughs> okay. Favourite food? Japanese. Favourite song? Um, Bright Side of the Road. Favourite place in the world? Paris. What's next? Um... Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going? Oh, well, I think I might be going to New York for New Year's Eve. But I might that, be there. That, really? Yeah, oh, we're going for Christmas. Times Square together. How Maybe. exciting would that be? Yeah, I only planned that this week. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't locked it in yet, but that's the, that's the drawing aim. board, yeah. Oh, very nice. Mm. Yeah, I've, it's something we've always wanted to do. The kids are old enough now, so we're sitting yeah. there going, why not? Well, I'd planned to do that with my kids the Christmas that knew uh, and knew that COVID hit. Oh, wow. didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that they'll probably come this time, but if I go this time, I'll get them there the next time. Yeah, my uh, my family always tell me that if I ever go on holidays, they're coming no matter how old they are. I went, oh, okay, as long as I don't have to pay. It's like, no, no, that's the reason we're coming. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've, I've, got a, I've got a scary <laughs> feeling that when I do tell the children I'm going, they will be saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate what you do to change this world because you're an amazing woman and Janine, as far as I'm concerned, you're an awesome human. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Thank you for having me here. No worries. I loved it. Cheers. <laughs>